Good morning, everyone. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you. I understand these are some early days in gathering. And we're all figuring out, aren't we, what it's really like for us to live and journey through an unexpected challenge in Canadian life. We've all been used to gathering uh, with, uh, what should I say, with impunity. Uh, We really just uh, come together and we breathe in one another's faces and we shout and sing our praise to God. And suddenly, all of the things that we used to do, we can no longer do. Uh, for rationale and reasons that we all understand, but to be enabled now, uh, given the strides that our own governments, both regional or provincial and national, have been making, um, it's a pleasure for us to be, to be able to be back together with one another, and then for us to be able to consider God's word together, uh, respond to it as individuals, but in the context of a gathered group. It was my pleasure to be able to go on your website and have a look at what this uh, conference has really been all about in the years that it's been operating, and also to have a little bit of insight as to how you've journeyed together uh, as a congregation that not only loves to see the gospel of Jesus Christ saturate your own community, but be placed in the hands of those that are willing to saturate it or saturate the communities around the globe with the same message. So you're doing something here and you're doing something there. The other thing I want to commend you about is that this is a congregation of notable size, but you've learned how to be big by going small. In other words, you learn to disciple by gathering in groups and sharing your lives with each other and and forming a degree of accountability where you're practicing the very things that you are learning from the Lord himself. This morning, I I want to take you in the first part of a a three-part series. Um, Your theme for the week, as I understand it, is that we are going to be, um, oh, too far. There it is. Vision to really see and mercy to really act. So I've taken your theme and I've divided it into uh, three pieces. The first is vision to see who Jesus really is. Because unless we have a maturing vision of Christ, we will not move into those areas that he's calling, to, calling us to possess. The second is to have a vision for the world, to be able to see the world through Christ's eyes. I'll deal with that uh, tomorrow night. And then the third is to be able to see Jesus provide an act of mercy, to see him show an act of mercy, and to learn from him what it really means to give mercy in his name. So a vision to really see and mercy to really act in three parts. This morning, I I want you to turn your attention with me to the book of Revelation in the first chapter, because for me, it's a pleasure to not only introduce the theme, but it is to be able to focus on what I would say is a quintessential, a focus, the apex of really seeing Jesus as he is, the risen, glorious, present, ruling king. Father, I'm praying that the words of my mouth and the meditation, reflection, consideration of each one of us in this room will glorify you. That you would move us on this discipleship path in ways that uh, you alone can challenge us. But we would pray that you would do so with a sense of your presence and the comfort that comes in knowing that you are not absent but very much with us. Help us, Lord, we pray, to have those eyes that you have opened, 
that we might see. In Jesus' name, amen. Vision to really see and mercy to really act. It's a wonderfully balanced theme. It's the need to not only see who God is, but it is the willingness to do what it is God says. That our actions are not simply good ideas of a community, although we all have good ideas of good things we ought to do, but they are those things that God has actually commanded and directed us as a church family to take. And vision, as the word is commonly used today, simply means to see. In the context of how we use it, it is to see something that is not yet. It's future. Vision, then, is about something that we would imagine, that we would dream, that we would desire, that we would hope for, that we would receive by faith and and agree that God is the one who is directing us towards that horizon. And so this is really the, the main point that I want to be making, is that every Christian must have a maturing vision of Jesus. And by a maturing vision, I want to suggest to you is that we need to be able to see God as he really is to understand how he promises and is indeed already working among us. When John was writing this particular letter, a circular letter that went not only to the seven churches to whom it is addressed, but to all of us as followers in churches of Christ, life was really grim. The self-designated emperor, the one who called himself a God-man and demanded worship throughout Rome, his name was Domitian. And John, the apostle who writes this, his fifth letter, a book that is included in the New Testament, is now an imperial prisoner. He's in exile on a little island called Patmos, part of a penal colony. And he's nearly 90 by historians and scholars' account. Now, I don't know about you, but now that I'm in what's called the golden years, a formal stage of retirement, I hope that should God give me length of days and commensurate strength, I'm a threat to someone when I'm 90. That's a good aim, don't you think? That God would give us vigor and strength and vision Because John is a man of incredible influence through what he's written in the New Testament and through what he's done as this large pastor and apostle, a sent one to God's own people. He has powerfully influenced the church of Jesus Christ. Not only is he exiled because of his stand against the Caesar of the day, Domitian, but he's encouraging and influencing a church to do similarly. We have one God, one Lord, one King over us all, and it's Jesus. We will not bow down. That's what Daniel said and his friends. Do you remember, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as we said, your shack, my shack, and a bungalow? They said, King, live forever. They were respectful, but they said, we will not bow down. And they intimidated an entire empire, so much so that Rome felt it had no other choice but to exile 90-year-old John. And to do worse to some of the followers of Jesus, they were killed in horrific ways. Caesar Domitian, it has made his own worshiper requirement throughout his entire empire. Failing to do so was a criminal offense. Domitian's historical record shows him to be a ruthless, micromanaging egotist. If historians have it right, a year after this letter was penned by John, 
Domitian's own senate that he had severely limited, he was such an egotist, assassinated him and replaced him with someone who was worse. Persecution against the church was flourishing. And the point I am emphasizing, friends, is that in moments like this, we need to see Jesus as he reveals himself, as he really is, that we might both be comforted and challenged to stand for who he is in days that would seem to deny, denigrate, defy his reign in rule from heaven. It is our vision of Jesus, seeing him as he is, that fuels our obedience to Jesus. We don't need a great God. We have one. We have him, the only king. What we need is to know him and honor him and obey him. You see, mission is founded and advanced on our mission of Jesus. This next next picture, which maybe you already caught a glimpse of, is Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and her great-grandson, Prince George. Now, this is one of those aw moments, right? Because what do we see? We see the monarch of the British Empire, of the United Kingdom, and of all the Commonwealth that it still remains, who called her Her Majesty. And what's going on? Well... It wasn't anything of governmental importance. It certainly wasn't anything I think that probably George or Her Majesty will ever remember. It was one of those conversations in passing. However, what the picture shows is among all of the roles that this regal lady, the monarch of our own nation, carries is this one. She is great nana to a little boy. Now, what grips me about this is not that Her Majesty has a great-grandchild of whom she's particularly fond, as all grandmothers and grandfathers are of their grandchildren. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just have one. It's life-changing. When our first grandchild was born, the church that I was leading at the time, a fellow came to me and said, Dave, I want you to know that grandchildren are the gift for not killing your own children. Now, fortunately, there was another man standing right behind him who said, no, I've got a better line, Dave. It's like falling in love all over again. And that's right. Family are a gift, a treasure of the Lord. But I want to suggest that we can feel what it is that's going on there emotionally, not because of a grandma and a grandchild, but because God himself, if you can picture it, when we speak to him, attends our very words understands all the groanings and frustrations and fears and anxiety and all that we're facing in pandemic and circumstance and sickness and job loss and frustration and fear. He knows it all. Is acquainted with it. Attends our, our prayers. I, I mean, when I think about it, we break into the presence of God Almighty, the maker and sustainer of the universe, and we blithely chat by the King of Kings with the King of Kings as if he has no other concern at all, no other agenda but what it is we're saying. We break into his presence with the same boldness that this little boy speaks to Nana. That's part of who God is with us, that he attends the prayer of his family. But I want us to consider this, 
that a diminished vision of Jesus can result in a diminished obedience to Jesus. You see, what I'm suggesting, if our vision of Jesus is in some way limited or reduced, and we see him in terms of family or friend only, then we run the risk, although it is true that he is our Father in heaven, and we're told to pray to him using of all the terms that one of intimacy and connection and familial closeness. But that is not the only way we are to see our God. We should be encouraged by the willingness of God to be known as our friend. And yet, if this becomes the whole of our vision, or this part of the vision of how we see God excludes and pushes out the the broadness of who he is in his nature and attributes and work, we're at a risk of seeing him in a way that we can dismiss his commands to the role of our consultant. Maybe we'll just talk a few things over with him and do the thing we like. After all, he's a friend. You understand what I'm saying is that sometimes it is our view and seeing of Jesus that actually limits the commands of Christ that demand obedience. Whenever a facet of Jesus' identity becomes the whole of how we see him and relate to him, then our role as ambassadors and missionaries and evangelists and obedient followers falls into the category of at risk. You see, we must have a maturing vision of Jesus that is formed and reformed by all that God lets us see him in his book, the scripture, the Bible so that it fuels the obedience that he demands from us. I'm suggesting that a maturing vision of Jesus fuels his followers to faithfully complete the task of discipling the nations. It's what he asks of us. Missions is the heartbeat of God. Missions is not born out of the church. Missions has always been on the heart and mind of God our Father. Missions is revealed to us through both the Old and the New Testaments, but seen most fully and completely in the gospel of his Son, our Savior Jesus. You know and love these words of the gospel from the book of John. Another book by the same writer. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. Missions was on the heart of God from the beginning. John 3.16 is a missionary verse. It is that God himself is initiating. God is the one who is giving his son. God is the one who comes and dwells with us. Emmanuel, God with us. God is the one whose idea was to end the separation between himself and the rest of humanity. And missions is the heartbeat of Jesus. He's done it. Missions was at the heart of God at the very beginning. Do you know when man was at his worst and God was putting them out of the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3, he spoke to the serpent and to Adam and Eve and these were the words he said, and I am going to put enmity, I'm going to put this distance, this, this battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, or the serpent and the seed of the woman, this, this distance, this enmity, this battle going on. And then he says this, he 
being the seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Do you see the battle, the tension? Already what's going to be going on that God will win through the seed of the woman and crush the serpent. That's Jesus. At what cost? What will the bite of that serpent do? The death of God's only son, Jesus, on the cross as the means of our atonement. This is what scholars like to call the proto-evangelium, the first telling of the good news. God's heart. The missionary God in the beginning, the missionary God with Jesus and coming to this planet, and now the missionary God revealing to us who Jesus is in the book of Revelation. Because you see, the unaltered task, the unaltered task of the disciples of Jesus and their assemblies, what is it? Well, for centuries we have used um, an an English word to describe our assemblies. We, We usually call ourselves churches. We're the church. And church for us means often this, that we're both going to church and we are the church. We sometimes use it to describe our spaces and sometimes we use it to describe us as a people. But I want to suggest to you that the word is not at all a religious word. There's so many different words that God could have used as the Bible was being written. He could have used the word that is used in the Old Testament for a temple. And we are actually called the temple, the the place that the Spirit of God indwells. He he could have used a similar kind of term. Or he could have used the word synagogue, where you go to a place for instruction and community. But he didn't. He used the word ekklesia. And ekklesia is a Greek word that means those who are called out as an assembly to do the business of the monarch or the ruler or the council of the city. You see, by definition, a church is an assembly called out by the king, or we could say the government of the city, to conduct the business of the cities under his rule. So what we're saying is that actually when the church gathers, and we do this every Sunday on the Lord's Day, both celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and that we are free from the bondage of sin and passed from death to life and passed from darkness to light and all that wonderful truth of the gospel. But do you realize that you are called out to hear the king and take your orders from the king of glory to fill the nations with the truth of who he is and to disciple them in his way? It's the heartbeat of the church. It is not that God has a mission. It is that God, pardon me, it is not that God, or we as a church have a mission. It is that God has a mission and the mission has a church. It is called out of the community, having heard the call of God himself to do the work that we're commissioned to do by that very ruler. So I've used the term king to signify authority, but as it could be a magistrate, an emperor, a council. But can you see the application to us? Who are we? We're God's family. We're his citizens. We're his ambassadors. We're his branches grafted into the vine. We are his bride. We are his people. We are his forever family. And we're called out to hear him and obey him. He's our king, our Lord, our living head. So, so what is it 
that Jesus has said that we are to do? Well, let me remind you in the book of Matthew when Jesus is meeting with his disciples shortly after his glorious resurrection. He calls them and they gather on a mountain. And he says these amazing words to them and to us. All power and authority is given unto me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So that's the business of the church is to disciple the nations. And it's an unaltered task. He's never retracted it. He hasn't changed it. He hasn't said, now look, in tough times, you, you don't have to keep doing this. You, you can just take a break, you know, just, just, just go sit on a bench for a while. As a matter of fact, the church often advances when the pressure against it is the greatest. The history of the church is that when it's oppressed, it frequently flourishes. Because people realize in those circumstances and those days, his followers realize that there's only one thing that matters, and it's Jesus. But you see, the, the, the text says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. The outcome in making disciples is that they do what Jesus says. Teach them to what? Practice. Uh, not to hear, not simply to make mental assent, not to agree with a creed, but to do what Jesus says. So, of course, you know what I'm going to ask you. Are you? How's your obedience? What is it that he has been speaking to you about through the wideness of his book? What is he calling you to hear and respond to? You see, it becomes incredibly personal. Not, not only is it a command to the gathered church that we would disciple the nations, it, it, it is a command to the individuals that compose that church that we be like him. You see, all disciples serve a glorious and present king, but all disciples in the first place have an unaltered task to finish. If we see Jesus as he is and understand him to be loving as his father, if we see him that he loved us in his life and he loved us through to the point of his death and he loves and serves us through his resurrection and he loves us and serves us still in his glorious ascension, then we don't see his commands as a duty, an obligation, a weight. We see them as our pleasure. Our unaltered task is to make obedient followers. Eugene Peterson expresses it brilliantly in the title of one of his books, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Following Jesus, doing what he says. You see, friends, the demonstration of our discipleship is not found in what we know. I'm not diminishing knowledge, but I'm saying that the test isn't, all right, sit down. Uh, I want you to write, write out the, the 66 books of the Bible spelled correctly and in order. Could you do it? Uh, I had to do that at Bible college. We all failed the first time. 
So we walked in class the second day, and our history professor, pardon me, our Old Testament professor, Dr. Dressler, said, "Take out a sheet of paper and do it again." Many of us failed the second time. We got back to class the next day, and we were pretty sure we knew what would happen, and it did. Take out a sheet of paper, write out the books of the Bible in order spelled correctly. And after we did it the third day, he paused and he said, "Don't you think those who are going to teach the book should at least know the books of the book and how to find them and where they are?" You understand, as a professor, he was making a point. What's the point I'm making with you? We have an unaltered task. It is to make obedient followers. Of the same King, we obey. That's the measure. He's not going to put. He's not going to put the measurement around our wallet. How much did you give? He's not even going to do what I, I, I hope. Maybe when I was young, he would do as he would. I could say to him, "Well, you know, Jesus, I've baptized him and I've married him and I've buried him and I've taught him. Are you happy with me now?" He puts the tape measure around our hearts. And he asks us that probing question in the Gospel,、uh, Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Wow. I don't want to hear that. Do you? I don't want that kind of discipline because we have the Scripture. We see who He is. We know who He is. And we have a picture of Jesus that I believe we must turn to again and again to fuel our obedience, to fuel our love, to fuel our acts of mercy to those who marginalize us or treat us with such things as contempt or condescension or disapproval or, cen- or censure or indifference. You know what I'm talking about? When when someone says, "Well, do you go to church?" Already, you know this isn't a safe question to answer. Their tone tells me the answer should be no, because the question is only idiots, people who have checked their brains,、uh, would go and listen to that. You, you know what I'm saying is that there there are pressures in every culture. Ours tend to be social pressures, but there are pressures nonetheless that we need to be able to. Understand what what makes it worthy to stand up against social pressure. The answer is that we serve a present King of Kings. We know Him. We love Him. We obey Him. You see, the Book of Revelation, and and I've been a long way talking about it before we arrive at it. But in Revelation chapter one, we we have this a- a- apocalyptic imagery of who Jesus is, and the book of Revelation gives us a picture of what Jesus claimed at the close of his ministry in Matthew: "All power and authority is mine," and we see him like that. In the book of Revelation, in the first chapter, we we have this this picture of who Jesus is, and it's a. Amazing, glorifying, majestic, and fear-filled picture.、Uh, listen to some of the descriptions,、uh, because it, it it says in this passage 
that I was on the Spirit on the Lord's Day down in verse 10, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet sound. Later it says it was as thunderous as Niagara Falls. Well, what would happen if we heard someone talking to us with the sound of Niagara Falls? We would pay attention, wouldn't we? Powerful, the imagery that is in this text. And I turned to see who was speaking to me, the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet like burnished bronze when it had been glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters." And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun. My goodness. What does John do? He does what any sensible man in the presence of such a visitation of God himself would do. He falls dead on his face. awestruck, overcome. The glory of God appearing to him. The book of Revelation gives us this view, and it's an apocalyptic view. What do I mean by that? What I mean is the apocalypse is a revelation. It's when the veil gets pulled back or the curtain is pushed away and we see things from God's perspective. But they're described in picture form, not in literal form. What am I saying to you? Is that we do not need to fear that when we see Jesus in the presence of God in heaven, that he will be this great creature. Eyes of fire. Voice like Niagara Falls. Sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, it's terrifying, isn't it? Any more than I believe Jesus in Revelation chapter 5 is going to be the person that we see, which is a lamb appearing slain with seven horns and seven eyes. The pictures are defined, are created for us to picture who Jesus is so we can't miss the point. All power and authority is mine. And where is Jesus? Uh, walking among these candlesticks. Well, we learn in chapter 2 that the candlesticks are the churches. And the stars are the esprit de corps, the spirit, the gathering of the church. Like, this church has, when you come into it, a feel. Is that true, Pastor? Does does this church have a feel? A culture, a a connection, a esprit de corps. Vital, alive, worshiping, attentive, caring, communing. What is it? Where, where is Jesus? Holding you in his hand, present walking among you. Do you get it? He, he is, by some would think, when you read about his ascension, he's, oh, he's somewhere building. He, he's in construction now. He's making a place for us. True, a wonderful picture. But we might think absent. And we have the Spirit of God within us. True. But we have the glorious Son of God Himself among us. 
watching us, caring for us, leading us, head of the church, saying to us as a people, do what I tell you. Be my people. Follow me. As we conclude this morning, I want to do so with a very private and yet what I would call powerful tool that is broadly used in the whole disciple-making process or DMM, disciple-making movement process. That as people are discovering what the scripture is, who God is and what he does, who they are and what they are to do, at the end of any of those study times, of those encounter times, of those discovery times, they are asked to write down what they are going to do based on what they have learned. And then you know what they do? They go away and they live it out. And then the next week when they come back together, what is the first question that the group asks each other? So how did it do, how did it do last week? How did it go for you? Because one of the persons, if you're studying in the gospel and, and he realizes that, that, that Philip was brought to Jesus, he's going to say, well, you know what? I, I should bring my friends to Jesus. And, and I can think of three people that I need to introduce to Christ. And the leader goes, oh, so what are you going to do? Well, I'm, I'm going to go and talk to, and he lists three friends that he's going to share who he is in Jesus with. And so the next week he comes back and says, how did it go? Oh, it was terrible. Well, what made it terrible? I'm a coward. <laughs> okay. Oh, so you had trouble finding a way to start the conversation. Anybody have some suggestions for him? What, did you let him off the hook and say, well, you don't need to do that anymore? It's not my I will statement, it's his. And they begin to talk together, frankly, about a strategy, a plan, a few ideas of how to do the very thing he said he was going to do and couldn't get done. Do you see how powerful that is? Because one of the problems of a large gathering like this is, I can give you this assignment and you're going to put it in your Bible and you're going to close it up and you're going to walk out and who is ever going to ask you if you're doing it? But if you go to a small group and you write down your I will statement, and you share with the group what it is you're going to do based on what it is you've heard either here on a Sunday or in the text that you've studied, and it's your obedience to the writer of the book, Jesus, and we're going to ask you next week how it went, suddenly you realize people care about you and they take obedience here seriously. I loved hearing that you've got all these small groups going. It's wonderful. I commend you. I've seen and heard the stories of what you're doing on missions. It's amazing, and I commend you. Friends, if we are going to serve Jesus in our day, we need to see him as he is and do what he says. So seriously... What are you going to do today? Are you going to make it your ambitious goal to have a maturing vision of who Jesus is and see him and know him? Are you going to make it your goal to support, support the enterprise of what this church is doing and you are going to give purposefully, intentionally, generously to your partners? Are you going to pray faithfully for a missionary as you never have before and really get to know them because you know we should care one for another? 
It's not for me to tell you what you must do. It is as you're listening to the text that you decide what Jesus is talking to you to do. Maybe some of you are listening this morning or are here this morning with friends and family and you realize that this God we have talked about is not a God you yet claim as your own. You know about him, but you've never yielded yourself to him. Maybe that's where you're going to start. You're going to come to him today. You're going to place your faith in him and follow him. Maybe as I've been talking to you, there's something that the Spirit of God has been troubling you with for a long time. You know all about that. He's taken his thumb this morning and he's putting it right on that pressure point of your life. And he's saying, let's talk about this. Too long. Too long have you tolerated this. What am I saying? That as you hear the word of God, and he calls you through his glorious revelation of himself. King of kings, Lord of lords, head of the church walking among you. That you, my good friends in Jesus, would see him as he is and do what he says. Father God, Thank you that as we're gathered, you're not absent. It's not my words, O oh Lord, that people need. It's your words. But you have promised to use the foolishness of a lecture, of a preaching message, to accomplish a powerful purpose because your spirit possesses us and directs our attention, our hearts, and our lives. So, oh Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, we will be both built up in our faith seeing you as you are, and challenged in our walk to do as you say. May we have a vision to really see. In Jesus' name, amen.